0: Good day, and welcome to the Intelsat Initiation Overview Conference Call. Today's conference is being recorded. At this time, I would like to turn the conference over to Jonathan Chaplin. Please go ahead.
1: Good morning, all, and thanks for joining us on a busy Monday morning. I'll be handing over to Vivek Stalem in a second to walk through his initiation of Intelsat, which we're really excited about. For those of you that don't know Vivek, he's been focused on spectrum for New Street for the last six years. This is a a topic he knows extremely well. He's been deeply embedded in in the subject and all the work that we've been doing around the C-band and DISH um, and anything spectrum related for a very long time. In many ways, this initiation is long overdue. Vivek's been writing and speaking about the C-band specifically um, for a couple of years and some of the content In the report will be familiar of those to you that have read our C-band series previously, but I think there's a lot in here that's new. In particular, I think Vivek's done some really uh, phenomenal work on demand and bidding tension, and that drives the the crux of the differentiation um, of our thesis on the C-band in general and on Intelsat. Um, I'm also delighted delighted to have Blair Levin on the call today uh, to answer any of the thorny regulatory issues that surround the C-band and, and Intelsat and the process leading up to the, um, the transition of the spectrum. Um, and then we've also got Andrew Entwistle, um, who is a long-time satellite expert, has has worked in the satellite industry. For many years, and can uh, can answer any technical questions you have around the the satellite piece of the business for IntelSat, and with and of course we have Ethan Lacey on. For those of you, we'll have Q and A at the end. For those of you that don't want to ask questions on an open mic, please email questions to Ethan at ethan dot at newstreetresearch dot com. Um, with that, I think we're ready to get started. Um, and I'll hand over to Vivek.
2: Thanks, Jonathan, Uh, and thank you everyone for uh, joining. Today I'm going to walk you through our Intelsat initiation report with a focus on carrier demand for the C-band spectrum specifically. Uh, We think this is a really important topic, not only for Intelsat stock, but really for the entire group of companies that Jonathan and the team covers. So first, starting off on slide two, as a starting point, C-band is going to account for a huge chunk of industry capacity. It's 21% of industry spectrum, and that assumes just 180 megahertz comes available. Uh, There's a good chance that uh, 300 megahertz comes available, so it could be meaningfully higher than that. But in addition to the fact that it's just a big proportion of industry spectrum, it also benefits from the fact that it's unpaired, which means it can be used primarily for downlink, whereas most carrier spectrum today is paired. In addition, it's higher in frequency, which means that it can be used for 5G technologies like massive MIMO and beamforming, unlike the majority of current carrier frequencies which are deployed across 2G, 3G, 4G technologies. Altogether, we think just 180 megahertz of C-band would translate into 30% of industry capacity. On slide three, you can see for the largest bidder, largest wireless carrier, Verizon, this is a really meaningful spectrum band. They're the most obvious buyer of the C-band because they're the most in need of spectrum. Verizon today significantly over-earns on its capacity. They generate nearly 40% of industry revenue on just about 15% of industry capacity. Historically, it's been able to take advantage of incumbency advantages like a large customer base, better low-band coverage, but those things are eroding. T-Mobile's rapidly deploying low-band, and is deploying FirstNet, cable's getting to ride over the Verizon network on attractive terms. And so we think that Verizon's uh, lack of resources is going to start to impair it more in the future as we shift to a capacity-driven wireless market. On slide four, you can just see how much magnitude of value is at risk at Verizon. If the capacity gap that they face today were to completely collapse, there'd be nearly 200 billion of equity value at risk. That's nearly the entire market cap. In order to make up this value, Verizon would need to buy a comparable amount of C-band spectrum. That would mean 180 megahertz out of 180 megahertz that are likely on offer. Moving on to slide five, Verizon not only has a significant need for the spectrum, but they also have a lot of balance sheet capacity to potentially spend on the spectrum. Their historical leverage range has been 1.75 to two times, excluding their ABS. If they were to bid $10 billion, it would take them just two incremental quarters to return to their target leverage range. It would hardly register. For historical context, when they did the Verizon wireless deal back in 2013, they took leverage from their target of two times to three times. And six years later, they have yet to get back there. The same pace of deleveraging for C-Band would suggest they could pay up to $30 billion. Our assumption is that they get to somewhere in the middle and spend $20 billion on C-Band. Moving on to slide six, we think AT&T will bid as well. They face a capacity shortfall, like Verizon, though not quite at the same magnitude. But more importantly, they've also been an aggressive buyer spectrum under the current management team who really believe strongly in the value spectrum. In the 700 megahertz and AWS 3 auctions, they accounted for 35 to 45% of the overall auction spend. And while they largely sat out 600 megahertz, at the peak of their spend in that auction, they actually represented 25% of the total bids. They subsequently reduced demand significantly in that auction after it became clear that they had won 700 megahertz first net spectrum. So AT&T is institutionally uh, uh, sort of bullish on spectrum and believes in the value of spectrum as being the underlying driver of wireless values, we believe. Moving on to slide 7, AT&T has a huge asset base to leverage. So although they don't have quite as pristine a balance sheet as Verizon does today, if they're willing to put off delevering to their target two-turns range by just two quarters, it creates $5 billion in incremental capacity. If they delay it by a year, it creates $10 billion in incremental capacity. On top of that, AT&T has talked about monetizing non-core assets on a regular basis going forward. So they could potentially use those pr- proceeds to invest incrementally in frankly what we think is probably their best business their wireless business it's their largest and most profitable business that they own today moving on to slide eight this is probably one of the key points of differentiation in our report which is we believe that t-mobile should bid to win spectrum from the c-band auction even if they get approval for the sprint deal if the sprint deal closes t-mobile is going to have a huge capacity advantage they're going to have nearly half of industry capacity but less than a third of industry revenues this translates into a significant cost advantage when their network is completely filled, and if they're able to fill their network, there's a massive amount of value creation from the incremental traffic and subscriber share that they would gain from that. for example, the, just ten percent of incremental subscriber share would translate into nearly a hundred billion dollars of value for new T-Mobile that's almost the entirety of the pro forma market cap if the deal were to close. if they could get the entire twenty one percent capacity share that they think that we think that they should get, uh, given the magnitude of spectrum they'll have, that'll be $200 billion in value. Again, nearly doubling the pro forma market cap. However, if they don't bid on C-Band at all, almost all of that advantage will go away and $150 billion of upside will evaporate. As such, we think that they should bid for C-Band and they should bid for it aggressively. Moving on to slide nine, without a deal, T-Mobile, we think, clearly needs the C-Band. They face a 6% capacity gap today That would increase to 10% if they were to win none of the C-band. And it's important to remember that T-Mobile has historically added spectrum in order to drive subscriber share. Over the last five years, while they've been turning around their business, they've added 45 megahertz across 700 megahertz, AWS 3, 600 megahertz. Going forward, it's not clear that there are other avenues to add capacity as easily as C-band would be if the Sprint deal gets blocked. So we think they really need it on a standalone basis. Moving on to slide 10. With or without a deal, we think T-Mobile has a lot of balance sheet capacity. You know, just picking the midpoint of their sort of target leverage range of three to four times yields anywhere from 20 to $25 billion of headroom with or without a deal. Moving on to slide 11, we think that DISH also has the incentive and ability to bid on C-Band. You know, we've done a lot of work on DISH's wireless business, and we think that it's worth about $45 billion from an NPV perspective once they get the network fully up and running. That was in a world without C band. When we factor in C band and if DISH doesn't win anything and they sort of allow their capacity advantage to erode, we think that their network business would decline in value significantly. We estimate that it's only worth about $18 billion if 180 megahertz of C band goes to peers and peers are able to deploy a lot of incremental capacity while DISH is uh, left without any C band. Now, that might seem like a bad thing, but we actually think that DISH has plenty of capacity to bid. First of all, if DISH were to partner with a strategic partner like Tech or Cable in order to fund the first $9 billion of their network build, we think that that partner would absolutely want them to have C-Band. Uh, anybody partnering with DISH wants to see DISH's wireless business uh, have great capacity at a low cost, and that's what C-Band would ensure. In addition, DISH on its own actually has a fair bit of capacity, we think taking just the underbids of the spectrum that they've already bought at auction, i.e. what other people were willing to pay for it, plus you know uh, a really modest dollar per megahertz pop for the stuff that wasn't won at auction, we think that their spectrum portfolio has underbids or effective underbids of at least $32 billion. At a 50% loan to value on that, that's $16 billion in bidding capacity. When you factor in the EBITDA that they'll be getting from Boost, and then take out the current cash burn estimate that we have for their wireless business of $9 billion, we think that they have at least $9 billion to bid for C-Band. Moving on to slide 12, uh, cable obviously has a lot of capacity to bid for C-Band. Um, you know, it's sort of a question of would they prefer to uh, bid on C-Band or use their discretionary capital for other things? You know, At Comcast, that could be other investments at charter that's most likely share repurchases. Um, so it really becomes a question of, Uh, How much do they want? Uh, We think they're absolutely going to bid on C-Band because the ability of C-Band to drive capacity on Cable's plant is massive. If Cable were to deploy licensed C-Band across their 50 million hotspot network nationwide, we think it would be the same effective capacity as 4,200 megahertz for the average U.S. carrier. That means that cable can basically create the amount of capacity that's six times the entire wireless industry with just a 20 megahertz channel. Now, a lot of that benefit, as Jonathan wrote up in the weekly over the weekend, uh, will be captured by CBRS. But CBRS has a few drawbacks. The biggest one is it's uh, unlicensed and it can be preempted by certain incumbent users. It won't be very often, um, but there's no sort of guaranteed 100% uptime quality of service. And CBAN would put the quality of service uh, in control of the cable operator's hands, uh, allowing them to uh, uh, have a a more effective network quality than they would with CBRS. Moving on to slide 13, when we total it all up, using pretty conservative estimates that the incumbents are willing to deliver to their target range in 12 quarters, T-Mobile's willing to lever up to the midpoint of their historic range, and Dish and Cable are each in for five to 10 billion, we arrive at at least $60 billion in total bidding capacity. And again, this is a pretty conservative way of looking at it. We think that there could, in fact, be significantly more than that. If you were to see uh, you know, potentially new entrants into the market driving bidding tension, you, uh, you know, there could be significantly more capacity from the likes of a Verizon. Moving on to slide 14, this is a really key point, which is that competition in auctions comes from the challengers. When you look at who has won the most spectrum in the 700 megahertz and AWS 3 auctions, it's the incumbents. Verizon and AT&T both took home the majority of spectrum in those auctions. However, if you actually look at who was the second bidder on a lot of those licenses, it was challengers, i.e. not the incumbents, but other bidders who were competing with the incumbents in order to win those licenses. We think this drove... At least three to four billion of incremental auction proceeds in just the last two auctions and again this is just looking at the last round of bidding so it's only the incremental bidding tension on a very small portion of the demand curve you know it's likely that even more tension when you add it all up was coming from the challengers moving on to slide 15. The challengers now have more ability and incentive to bid than ever before. So looking at the wireless challengers, T-Mobile has at least $20 billion in bidding capacity for this auction. That is more than they had for 600 megahertz and that all the challengers had in prior auctions. And it's more by a significant amount, 2 to 4x the amount. Meanwhile, DISH, although they have a bit less bidding capacity today than they had in prior auctions, they're much more levered to the value of their wireless business, and they have a lot more in, uh, in value to protect by maintaining their capacity share through the C-band auction. Moving on to slide 16, we think C-band also has significant strategic value, and this isn't quite captured in the analysis that I just walked you through, but there are other pieces where C-band brings value. The first is foreclosure value, and this is simply the existing industry players and the largest among them being able to protect their pricing power by ensuring that the likes of Google, Facebook, Amazon don't enter the market. We don't know if they will. They are always rumored to be bidders. They rarely show up, and they might, but you know, this is a, a key band, and to the extent that Verizon and AT&T want to ensure their incumbency position, uh, there's some value in that. In addition, C-Band is a key global 5G band. It sits right in the heart of the 5G, 3G, bands. And as a result of that, it's going to be the band where the most technological development and innovation takes place. And it's also going to be the band over which applications are developed uh, to ride most seamlessly. So that means that there's a sort of global industrial benefit to deploying c-band for an operator and then the last piece here is that carriers are repeat customers at the fcc um, you know by bidding aggressively in c-band ensuring a sort of policy win, investing heavily in 5g uh, it sort of puts them in a good light with the regulators and you know To the point that they're repeat customers, just the guys that we've mentioned so far, Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, DISH, and Cable, you know, they've been involved in deals with 175 billion in announced synergies over the last decade. Um, That's a significant amount of value that's sort of been put in the hands of regulators. And, uh, you know, we think all of the companies in this space would seek to maintain good relations with regulators. Now, one of the things that we often hear is that this is a really high Uh, Auction benchmark fifty billion dollars. It's never been hit before. The only thing that was close was AWS three, and that was a total outlier. But actually, when you look at AWS three more closely, it wasn't that much of an outlier. It was the only auction that Verizon and AT and T participated in since the seven hundred megahertz auction, and since then, wireless EBITDA has nearly doubled for the group. So the amount of EBITDA. That was participating in the AWS3 auction was significantly higher than in almost any other auction. When you look at auction proceeds as a percentage of participating carrier EV, uh, it's actually in a fairly narrow range between six and eight percent. Moving on to slide 18. Just taking the midpoint of that six to eight percent would translate into 50 billion dollars in auction proceeds when you look at the aggregate value of the wireless industry today, factoring in guys like Dish and Cable. Now, if the merger were to go through, we think that you would have to include Sprint CV in there as well as the value of the synergies, and it could actually raise auction proceeds all the way to $56 billion, again, at the midpoint of the historical range. Moving on to slide 19, we think clearing costs will require about $2.5 billion in total. This is a little bit higher than I think uh, what others have estimated, sort of in the $1 to $2 billion range. You know, we put in $500 million for sort of other ancillary clearing costs, and It's been our experience that clearing processes often cost a little bit more than folks expect, um, but it's not a meaningful chunk of the $50 billion in aggregate proceeds that we expect out of the auction. Moving on to slide 20, you know, a lot of folks look at the incentive auction as the comp for how the government and the CBA will ultimately divvy up the proceeds. We think there are a few key differences here. One is the 600 megahertz incentive auction had a clear congressional mandate, Uh, In this case, while that's possible and there may be congressional pressure, we think it's ultimately unlikely that we actually see a law coming out of Congress on the C-Band. Secondly, the 600 megahertz auction saw competing suppliers of the spectrum. The C-Band process is not seeing competing suppliers, so there's less uh, of a competitive drive to drive the proceeds down for the industry. And then, Sort of the more important points is that in the incentive auction, the clearing was entirely handled by the FCC. They sort of coordinated the broadcaster relocation. And just as importantly, they bore the marginal demand risk. So in the case of the broadcast incentive auction, had the wireless carriers only bid $13 billion dollars, The FCC would have ended up with basically nothing, and 100% of the proceeds would have been in the hands of the broadcasters. Um, In this case, it's the CBA who we think will ultimately bear the marginal demand risk, and they're obviously handling the clearing. So you know, we think that the CBA is actually um, sort of doing more than uh, what the broadcasters did during the incentive auction process. So we think that the incentive auction process is probably the starting point. For the FCC's ask, but we also know that kind of 0% was the starting point for the CBA's ask. And, you know, in our analysis, we kind of assume that they end up in the middle at 20%. Moving on to slide 21, this just gives a brief overview of the key stakeholders we think of in the C band ecosystem. So, you know, obviously the big ones are the satellite players. They are on board with the CBA process, save for uh, uh, UTILSAT. Um, UTILSAT, we believe, uh, is more having a dispute over uh, the split of proceeds within the CBA as opposed to the process itself. Um, But we don't think that's a meaningful hurdle. And then beyond that, it's the earth stations and the wireless carriers, i.e. the current occupants of the C-band ecosystem as well as the future users. And the earth stations are also closely tied to the national programmers. However, a majority of C-band earth stations, the majority of major national programmers, and the majority of the wireless carriers, as you know, sort of measured by EV, support the CBA proposal or something very closely akin to it. In the case of AT&T, so that's why we think the CBA has a really good shot here of uh, ultimately getting their plan through the FCC and have their plan be the one that's adopted by the FCC. Obviously, we'll be on the lookout for incremental comments from here, but given that we're sort of two to three months away from where the FCC is likely to issue an order, we don't expect this to flip. Moving on to slide 22. So after accounting for clearing costs, the government take of 20%, we think there's $38 billion in aggregate proceeds to the CBA. Again, it's fairly sensitive here. You know, anywhere in the 0 to 40% range would get you from $29 to $48 billion for the CBA. Moving on to slide 23. So our base case of $38 billion of proceeds to the CBA should translate into roughly $16 billion in net proceeds to Intelsat. You know, we use fairly consensus assumptions here. We're at 45% of Intelsat's share of the overall CBA proceeds, and then we have a modest tax uh, uh, payment from Intelsat. Uh, most of their income will be protected by a $12 billion null. Moving on to slide 24. So overall, our base case equity value for Intelsat is $72 per share. We think the $16 billion in proceeds from the CBAN process is slightly offset by uh, an underwater core FSS business. And in addition to that, we take the uh, final step of assuming a 25% probability that Congress acts in such a way that CBA's proceeds are effectively reduced to zero. We don't know exactly that it's 25%. We know it's more unlikely than likely. Um, and you know, I think as Blair noted in his uh, comment from over the weekend, there's there's some prospect that the CBA influences the FCC, but it's uh, likely to be an uphill battle to see an actual congressional law mandate at this point. So then moving on to slide 25, which I think is the really key one, um, you know our base case is that total auction proceeds are $50 billion and the government takes 20% of net. However, under almost any reasonable scenario where aggregate auction proceeds are $50 billion, the government take rate uh, results in significant upside for Intelsat equity. Anywhere from 0 to 50% would result in nearly 100% or more upside for Intelsat equity. So we think that The key thing for investors to be focused on is the auction proceeds and the value of this band to the wireless carriers, much more so than the sort of regulatory process which might influence this 10% one way or the other. So, with that, I'll turn it over to Ethan Lacey.
3: Thanks, Vivek. And uh, just, again, as Jonathan mentioned earlier on, if anyone has questions for the call that you don't want to ask uh, live, you can always just email those to me at ethan.lacy. That's L-A-C-Y at newstreetresearch.com. And, um, operator, do you mind just queuing uh, for Q&A at this time? Thank you.
0: Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you're using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Again, press star 1 to ask a question, and we'll pause for just a moment to allow everyone an opportunity to signal for questions.
3: Hey, Vivek, maybe while we wait, I've already gotten quite a few just um, uh, sent in, and uh, wanted to touch on one just in terms of value as it relates to uh, the competitive processes that we've seen for c band in international markets, which I guess have resulted in some interesting results. So, in addition to sort of the absolute results, how would you consider the requisite adjustments uh, to those to triangulate, you know, for a value uh, in the U.S. as it relates to c band
2: Yeah, so, you know, this is something that we're hoping to do a lot more work on going forward, which is how specifically does auction structure, the splitting up of bands and band sizes uh, affect auction proceeds? We've seen international uh, comps in most markets, anywhere from roughly 10 cents to 40 cents a megahertz pop. Uh, U.S. spectrum has historically traded for three to four times the international comp. So, you know, you can use that as a sort of starting point. Uh, At the low end there, you'd be slightly below our base case. But again, that assumes that, um, you know, there's sort of very little bidding tension uh, in this auction, which, you know, I I don't think will be the case. Um, But again, we're planning to do more work to see specifically how auction rules and block sizes can impact that.
3: Got it. And and I've had some who said, you know, when adjusting, you know, say Germany, for example, for EBITDA or sub lease terms and build out requirements, you could get a comparable value for the U.S. by comparison of as much as a dollar per megahertz pop in the U.S. I don't want to tie you down to a, you know, a particular construct, but, you know, would you agree or sort of disagree with that thought process?
2: Yeah, I I don't think that's a, a crazy high end estimate. What I'd say is that Uh, The way I look at it is the sort of constraints um, for the U.S. are really around sort of bidding capacity, and at some point, um, you know, depending on how many megahertz you think are ultimately sold, you end up getting it to numbers that are just utterly implausible. I'd say our base case of $50 billion on 180 megahertz implies about $0.90 a megahertz pop.
3: Great. Thank you. I've, I've got more, but operator, is there anyone in the queue at the moment? Thanks.
0: We'll take our first question from Matt Frage with Millennium. Please go ahead. Hey hey Vedic, thanks for uh doing the call. Uh I just have a question on um on the amount of spectrum that you guys assume uh in the auction and what you think the um how you think let's say uh another uh hundred and twenty, so maybe a total of three hundred megahertz might impact um it, it, Th- the auction dynamics and the price for megahertz pop um, and also what you think uh, or what you guys are, or even if Blair has sort of some views there in terms of uh, what you think the potential is for them to uh, auction um, the, the more than the 180 or 200 with the guard band that's uh, on the block right now.
2: Yeah, hey, this is Vivek. I'll, I'll take the first part of that question. So as a starting point, the 300 megahertz it, uh, you know, will have Will represent a greater portion of industry capacity, have a larger impact on the industry, and have a sort of higher fundamental value from that point of view. You know, we're still going through the analysis to better understand, you know, what exactly specific block sizes would mean as far as bidding tension, whether or not. A potential reduction in bidding tension would actually more than offset that increase in fundamental value. Um, but as a starting point, I would actually say that I think the first most obvious move for from more spectrum being auctioned is actually up in aggregate proceeds, even if dollar per megahertz pop comes down.
0: Right. Okay. And then uh, one last one, just sort of uh, when you guys put out your um, your dish buy report a few years ago. And you used um the sort of implied uh downlink purchase price for um the AWS uh auctions to, to value value dish and, and then you sort of spoke about this a little bit in this report. You talk about the quote unquote underbid, um where you know the next the next highest bid to Ergen's bid was the uh was the true value. Um and what I think a lot of people talked about then was uh some pushback for you was that uh Charlie had sort of manipulated uh the auction uh in a sense right dr- dr- drove up the price and if so do you have any sort of I- if we have if we have an FCC style auction uh doesn't that sort of open this up to the same price driving mechanisms
2: um so <laughs> Uh, two points there. First is, uh, you know, I I would somewhat disagree with the notion that Ergen uh, drove up the price artificially. Uh, You know, the analysis that we've always done for Spectrum on a bottoms-up basis suggests that it's worth uh, well in excess of the sort of dollar-to-dollar-fifty a megahertz pop that carriers historically had paid for it in prior auctions. And we think that Ergen's participation in the auction simply made them reveal their true underlying demand for that Spectrum. Um, you know, Nobody forced AT&T and Verizon to bid $2.66 a megahertz pop in that auction. Uh, they only did that because they finally had competition to that level to bid right. there. And then to your second point about whether or not, uh, if this is an FCC-style auction, it's prone to the same gaming, I would tell you that you know, I think that there's going to be at least five bidders for this spectrum, and if you actually look at what AT&T and Verizon said after the auction, they said that we thought there were five bidders because DISH was representing three bidding entities at the same time. Um, and that caused us to um, misunderstand what was really going on. Um, in this auction, you're going to have five real bidders, just like you did, uh, in, or just like the incumbents thought they were facing in the AWS 3 auction. So I actually think that that's a great comp.
0: And if one of so these just guys to, pays a lot of money. I just one last one on, on Verizon, for example. Just using them as a as a as a uh, as a focal point. Uh, if they were to pay and if they were to flex their balance sheet to use to acquire a disproportionate share of C band, uh, how would the equity guys respond if they have to if they're writing a big check? Is this a positive or a negative for a Verizon equity investor? How do you think the market will take it?
2: Yeah, so I think that uh, up to a certain level, um, the equity would be okay with it. Um, I think that there's some understanding that Verizon is under resourced today from a spectrum perspective, though probably not to the magnitude that we think that they are. Um, so I would say that you know it's hard to put an exact number on what that is, but I would say that probably our base case would be a little bit of downside for the Verizon equity on an auction, but not a not a huge chunk. So Matt, just to follow up on two things: if you
1: look at the performance of the big telcos in an auction year. Um, it, it tends to, in general, uh, not be a great year uh, for telco equity performance. The but the 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 way the markets seem to digest spectrum acquisitions um, is that they've gotten, they've they've picked up an asset that's roughly equal to what they paid for it. Um, so the there tends to be a, a bit of a, an overhang on telco stocks in auction years. But generally, the stocks only really go down if there's a big disconnect between the expected proceeds uh, or, or the expected spend for a specific carrier and what they actually spend. It's, as Vivek mentioned, I think it's difficult to know what Verizon's pricing in, in terms of spend for the C-band auction. Everyone knows that they're gonna be there. $20 billion might be above what 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 people expect them to spend, um, but I, I, would, I, I, I would be surprised if expectations are for any less than $10 billion for Verizon specifically, and some amount of spend for T-Mobile and, uh, and AT&T as well. Going back to your earlier point on the dynamics in the, in, in the last Spectrum auction, um, I actually think you've sort of hit the Hit the nail on the head in terms of what could drive dynamics in this auction. So, in AWS three, as you pointed out, Ergen uh, was in there, constituting somewhere between one and three bidders, um, and and as a function of that, we got as, as Vivek mentioned price discovery, um, because we had a, a new a new aggressive bidder in the auction. The carriers paid. Full value for the spectrum. Effectively, they were pushed to pay, pushed to pay top dollar uh, for the spectrum. And I, I think the if you look at the number of bidders in that auction, or 600 megahertz or 700 megahertz, uh, I think you actually have to go all the way back to the AWS one auction to find uh, to find auctions with five active carrier bidders, all with capacity to bid a fair amount um, and a strong incentive to bid a fair amount. Um, and I, I, I've been meaning to check this as Vivek's been uh, working on this initiation, but I, I still think the highest bid we've ever seen in an auction might be Chicago um, in that auction where Leap and Metro PCS were bidding against each other. Um, I think that's probably the last time we had five carriers bidding on Spectrum in an auction. Um, the, I think you also had, uh, sorry, the, the, the question before, um, I think we left unaddressed, uh, uh around the, the, the pro, you know, the, the process to get to 300 megahertz, um, and, um, how likely it is to be more or, or how likely it is to be more than hundred megahertz. And Blair, I think you're, um, you're still on the line if you've got thoughts on, where we end up in terms of total magnitude of spectrum auctioned, um, and what the likelihood of the FCC being able to squeeze more than 100, 180 megahertz out of the processes, um, that would be great to add.
4: Yeah. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And by the way, great, great report. Uh, a couple of thoughts on that, here's where I think the state of play is, CBA, which originally said it can only be 100, is now said it can only be 200. but They've been given clear signals from FCC leadership that the that there has to be an announcement of a reallocation of 300, and the way that they're doing it is by working with some of the large content folks to look at what are the projections going forward in terms of compression. So what you what what I think is the most likely scenario today, but it's very much in flux, is that they make an announcement that the FCC will cause 300 plus. To be auctioned 180 will be what you might think of as a first tranche available. Let's call it an 18 to 36 months, um, or and, and then a second tranche of additional uh, to be made available based on some metric, either of time or of uh, technology. And what that does is it creates what you might think of as uh, artificial scarcity. You can take out the word scarcity, uh, artificial, but um, obviously, the tranches that are available earlier will be worth more, and so it's not like having an auction where you have that you've done this and the FCC has done this in the past. Where you simply have 300 available 10 megahertz licenses or 20 or whatever, and and everybody's kind of bidding against each other for the same thing. You're going to have different views of what is the value of time. So that that I think is a story which is completely consistent with the kind of uh scarcity in the number of potential buyers um uh but that's what we're looking for today I think that since the C band proposal is very much wrapped up in the narrative of uh competing with the Chinese in 5G uh as part of that narrative you simply cannot have a number uh for a spectrum that is significantly lower than what the Chinese are making available for that. Let me make uh, two other very quick observations. Uh, Number one, that there is a possibility that you have three auctions going on simultaneously. And that is something we haven't seen before. The scenario goes something like this. The FCC says to CBA, you run the auction. Uh, Here are the rules you have to run it by. And CBA says, great, we'll start the auction. They say they can do it expeditiously. I think they're sinking 60 days. I think that's too short. But let's just say, for the sake of illustration, they started in June. Then, let's say the trial court says to uh, T-Mobile and Sprint, uh, you lose. Sprint then announced, and this will happen in February, it announces it's hired an investment banker to essentially auction the 2.5 spectrum, and that spectrum is auctioned, oh, let's just say, in June. Here's my point. You're going to have three rather significant things going on at the same time. I think one can, as we have done, make a very good case about the cap- financial capacity. But I do think investors ought to, ought to note that when you have three different proceedings run by three different groups, but being essentially the, the buyers are the same, that creates a certain level of unpredictability that's really interesting, but also much harder to model. And then the the final point I would make is that the likelihood of congressional reaction is directly proportional to the amount of dollars at stake. If this were a $5 billion auction, I wouldn't think Congress would care much whether the CBA gets 50%, 25%, 75%. And a $50 billion auction, I I think differently. Um, We're going to have to see over time. Obviously, it's not a top priority for Congress. It's very difficult to get Congress focused on something that seems at this point to it quite theoretical, not to the people on the phone. Um, But I think that as we get closer to the FCC decision and as the numbers reflect what we think of as an incredibly high demand, the congressional uh, interest is greater. And, and, And this goes to this very, again, difficult question to model. CBA believes it will simply strike a deal with Ajit as to what percentage they have to they have to turn over as a voluntary contribution. In truth, they're striking a deal with Ajit as modified by the voices in Ajit's head from Congress saying, if you give them too much money, uh, we're going to make your life miserable. So that's a more complicated thing. And we'll obviously be talking about that uh, as time goes on. And back to you. Operator, were
3: there any other questions on the line? Thank you.
0: It appears there are no further questions at this time.
3: Uh, Vivek, if you don't mind, I, I just want to sort of segue what Blair just brought up because there was a question from the field just specifically as it relates to a scenario in which, let's say, Sprint and T-Mobile does get blocked, uh, you know, and Sprint uh, has to sell similar spectrum, you know, say the 2.5 to avoid bankruptcy, uh, uh, how are our thoughts or how do we think about that in the context of, you know, people potentially, you know, seeing less demand or less need for the C-Band?
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think it, you know, that scenario is probably on a different timeline than the C-Band timeline. So, you know, as Blair laid out, Blair laid out I think that uh, C-Band is, you know, going to be sort of uh, coming available over the next 12 months and, you know, A deal block would happen sometime uh, in January or February, and it's likely that Sprint wouldn't need to restructure for some time thereafter. Uh, They might seek out alternative deals. You know, on the whole, if Sprint puts the 2.5 on the block, though. It would certainly uh, reduce demand to some extent for the C-band, how much uh, is a bit of a question whether Sprint was just looking to sell a little to keep themselves afloat or if they were looking to sell themselves in entirety to the likes of a cable. You know, cable might be entirely good in that instance. So um, it sort of depends on what uh, shape and flavor the Sprint sale of their 2.5 looks like. But I would say that it's a fairly outside possibility to affect C-band just because it's unlikely to be certain Uh, on the same time frame that C-Band will be coming to market. Um, It's more likely that Sprint would languish for a bit post-deal break. Right.
3: And then if I can just touch on what I think is probably the most differentiated view that we have, not only on Intel's out Dish as well, which is the idea that we could find ourselves in a world where we have four to five bidders you know, uh, for the spectrum, you know, to which Jonathan certainly addressed earlier, is something that we haven't seen in quite some time. I guess one, you know, question some would have is, you know, Sprint, and T-Mobile, subsequent to, let's say, a deal approval, do they really need C-band given all the two dot five uh, uh, capacity that uh, they're going to have? Thanks.
2: Yeah, again, I think that this is something that's really important to understand, which is uh, the entirety of the value of the upside in new T-Mobile comes from the fact that they will have an industry-leading cost structure driven by the fact that they'll have the most amount of capacity on air on a similar cost structure as their peers. Uh, If they let Verizon and AT&T snatch up the majority of the C-band, that advantage of theirs would largely dissipate. And so we tried to put a number on that by, you know, kind of looking at their pro forma capacity share versus what it would look like if they won no C-band. And that's 15% of market share that they have a right to win if they maintain their capacity share through a C-band auction, i.e. bid aggressively and win a good chunk of it. Um, and that's 15% of market share that goes away if they don't bid on C-band. And it, you know, in a $700 billion market, that's a huge amount of value. Um, that they're sort of giving up, you know, um, for uh, a little bit of a short-term benefit on their balance sheet. And so, you know, we don't think that given what they've explained to be the upside in their pro forma business, i.e. what we've laid out, the incremental capacity that they're going to be putting on air, the industry-leading speeds that they're going to have, the ability to take share well into the future, um, that's the sort of vision that's been elucidated by the companies. And we think that that's going to require incremental spectrum investment in C-Band. Got it. And then I think
3: another area where we've had some pushback is just the idea that, you know, what will dish investors' reaction be if uh, they put, a you know, outlay, you know, capital on C-Band without a financial partner yet in place? Uh, for their you know, uh, existing wireless build, which we're still sort of in the early stages of seeing how that detail unfolds. And obviously, a financial partner has been a big question mark in the DISH thesis
1: as well. Thanks. So I'll take that one, Ethan. It's difficult to imagine DISH buying a huge chunk of the C-band without a financial partner, without uh, capital in place. So DISH has to go out and raise capital to fund the network plan that they've laid out so far. And we think it's actually a very manageable amount of capital to the tune of about $9 billion if the Sprint T-Mobile go- deal goes through and DISH is able to acquire a boost and benefit from the cash flows that would come off of the boost business. The thought process that we've been working with is um, in, in order to go out and find the capital to build that business, DISH is going to be speaking to strategic uh, potential strategic backers um, as well as financial backers, whether it's the public equity markets, private debtor equity markets, um, or strategics that fund that investment, they're going to want, they're going to be funding that investment on the basis that they buy into the, the story that DISH has this tremendous competitive advantage. Um, based on a lower unit cost than AT&T and Verizon. That's the source of what makes Dish's business on the back of the spectrum they have at the moment really, really exciting. Whoever backs Dish in that endeavor will want them to pick up more spectrum when it becomes available um, because they will need to buy a a portion of all incremental spectrum that comes to market to maintain that, that competitive advantage that they have, and the and T-Mobile is in exactly the same position. Um, T-Mobile will have a tremendous competitive advantage as a function of having a lower unit cost than AT and T and Verizon. If AT and T and Verizon pick up all marginal spectrum, the C-band auction, um, then that competitive advantage gets eroded away, and so T-Mobile too will be really keen on getting their hands on. A portion of all marginal spectrum that is that is auctioned, their need isn't going to be nearly as great as Verizon's in the C-band auction, and they won't bid as aggressively, and we they 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 won't spend um, nearly as much. We wouldn't think, um, but they 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 both um, will have a vested interest in picking up more spectrum and not letting it all go to AT&T and Verizon, and as, as Vivek's analysis uh notes in the case of t-mobile they got plenty of capacity to bid in the case of dish they they don't have a lot of obvious <clears throat> capacity to bid um as things stand right now though more than i think people realize when you look at the leverability of their existing spectrum portfolio plus the the spectrum they would add to that portfolio um but they've got to go through a capital raising process um um anyway um, at some point, and the the, the you know everybody that we 've been speaking to over the course of the um, last three months that is really excited about Dish in the context of um, the the sort of the clarification of their interest in building a network and by the way that list of that list of people is longer than you might think their are focus on DISH as an infrastructure. Um, as an infrastructure play, a wireless, a wireless capacity infrastructure play, um, and the, peop- the you know all those people um, whose interest has been engaged, I would imagine would like w- would be supportive of Dish picking up more spectrum.
3: That's great. That's helpful. I've got uh, three more. I just want to try to get through before the end of the hour here because we are coming up on eleven o'clock. I guess one question that we've gotten in a number of different fashions is just the idea of around aggregate capacity. We we sort of set out a fifty to sixty billion of capacity, and one question has just been how likely is it that all of that capacity does get spent here on the C band rather than say other uses of capital, and you know that could be you know spectrum or you know other areas where capital might get deployed otherwise.
2: Yeah, hey, this is uh, Vivek. I you know, I think that when you look at the other spectrum bands that are coming to market, uh, you know, I think Blair mentioned a handful of them, the CBRS, a little bit of the 2.5 um, neither of those is nearly of the same magnitude or quality that C-Band is. You know, CBRS is a sort of shared band with a lightly licensed, low-powered model. Um, it can't really de- be deployed effectively on macro sites for existing carriers, um, and it still has federal users that can preempt the licensed users at certain times. So you know, I, I don't think that that band will be a significant use of capital for the carriers. Uh, I would think about that more like how the carriers use five gigahertz, uh, you know, LTE today, it's a nice little help, but it's not something that they're going to invest a lot of capital behind. Um, And then the 2.5 that is being auctioned is a small portion of the overall band, which is mostly held by Sprint. And obviously, um, you know, we kind of talked through that situation earlier. So I don't think that there's an obvious, uh, you know, spectrum replacement for, um, you know, that this balance sheet capacity. Um, And as I think about the sort of M&A landscape more broadly, you know, I suppose uh, anything's possible, but, um, you know, obviously T-Mobile is going through their own deal right now, and we kind of looked at it both ways for them. Um, and between Verizon and AT&T, you know, it's, I guess, possible that one of them uh, were could use their balance sheet capacity for something else, but AT&T seems to be in delevering mode. Um, so I think you probably have things going the other way for AT&T. Overall, you know, I think that this is such an important strategic asset and it's coming to market over the next 12 months with some degree of certainty, uh, you know, the vast majority of that balance sheet capacity should be used for the C-band.
3: That's great. And then my last two are uh, go sort of hand in hand as follow ups to the conversation we were having earlier, uh, where Blair was touching on incremental uh, potential spectrum being sold and the relationship to price. Our analysis assumes a sale of 180 megahertz. How do you consider, uh, at least initially, aggregate proceeds if the CBA sells, say, 280 megahertz? And then the follow-up to that would be, how do we also think about option value that remains to the CBA for uh, the rest of the C- uh, the rest of the band that isn't cleared? Thanks.
2: Yeah. So you know, I would say that uh, you know, being conservative, we you know, our 50 billion dollar value is kind of uh, triangulated from uh, the bidding sheet, the the balance sheet capacity that the bidders have, and so you know, that figure doesn't change. Uh, whether it's 180 or 280 megahertz that's ultimately sold. I think, you know, just from an absolute sense, the incremental 100 megahertz should have some value, um, but it might not be a lot in aggregate proceeds. And it almost certainly would result in a lower dollar per megahertz pop value um, for the overall. As for the option value on the remaining, we'll say, 220 to 320 megahertz um, it's not something that we have factored in but i think the analysis that we've done here applies to that as well which is um, it'll represent a significant chunk of industry capacity it's a bit longer dated as far as you know when it might actually come to market um, given that you would have to do a lot of work to actually access it but um, you know a couple of years down the road with additional compression and more transmission being moved to terrestrial networks uh, you know i think that there's certainly some value in that i would describe it a pretty low value uh today just given that it's uh, so far off but um there's certainly value there Keith, and any more questions on your end
3: i do it's the last one i apologize this is actually probably maybe best for blair but if the sec adopts a typical uh clock auction used to say a fuel design proposed by autonomics would that chill uh the bidding uh, process at all in, well, either in Vivek or, or Blair's spine and if not, why? Thanks.
4: I'm sorry. I'm not quite sure I understood your question, but um, let, let, me, let me interpret it, and if I get it wrong, let me know. The CBA proposed a sealed bid single round auction, um, saying that that would save a lot of time. That proposal was universally panned, and CBA has gone back to the drawing board which means it'll probably end up, they will be accepting a very normal kind of FCC, simultaneous multi-round type of auction in which all the licenses are simultaneously bid and you just go in various bidding rules. And, and, and that, I see no evidence that that would suppress uh, any kind of demand. Uh, whether that action is technically run by the FCC or it's run by CBA, there are some there are some differences. But fundamentally, Um, it will be an auction run according to whatever rules the FCC wishes to impose.
2: Yeah, hey, this is Vic. I just wanted to jump in there. You know, all of our analysis assumes that this auction looks like FCC auctions historically have. The fuel design was really unique and, um, you know, could have possibly driven incremental bidding tension over and above that which has historically been seen. Um, You know, it sort of encourages the uh, best and final bid to be your only bid. Um, and so that could have driven prices even higher than what we've laid out. But as Blair mentioned, it does seem to be off the table at this point. Great. And with that, we're
1: pretty much at the top of the hour. I think we'll wrap things up there. Um, some some of your questions, I'm afraid we haven't gotten to. Um, but the team is in the office and we'll follow up with as many of you as many of view as we can after the call. Thank you all very much for joining, and uh, please keep the questions and the pushback on this theme coming. It's one we'll be keenly focused on over the course of the next six months. Thank you very much.